Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Really the only downside of organic food is the cost. And if that's something that, you know, you can afford, then certainly while, you know, you're trying for a baby and the sort of, you know, the cellular changes matter, just for three months or while you're trying, if you could swap over to an organic diet, um, I think that would, would be helpful. And certainly, if you can't, wash your fruit and vegetables really well. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition. And I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. On the show today, we are talking about everything to do with eating for fertility with a colleague of mine, Dr. Harriet Holm. She's also a regular contributor to the Doctor's Kitchen website. She is a registered nutritionist and an experienced pediatrician in the NHS. After studying at Cambridge University, Dr. Harriet worked in the NHS for over a decade, specializing in pediatric oncology. And I, I'm a firm believer that it's this experience that gives nutrition advocates like myself and Dr. Harrier a unique perspective of the landscape and the interplay between nutrition and medicine. Dr. Harriet has authored two books, one eating during pregnancy that she wrote to provide mums with credible information on pregnancy nutrition and another postpartum nutrition and experts guide to eating after a baby, again written to support new mums and their journey through motherhood and weaning. Dr. Harriet also has a number of virtual courses on her website, the links to which are all on the podcast show notes. Today, this is a topic I'm asked about a lot, so I'm, I'm delighted that we could actually talk about this. Uh, we're going to be chatting about foods and supplements that may support your fertility. This isn't a cure-all, this is uh, looking at the evidence base and providing you with credible, reasonable suggestions of ways in which to eat to improve fertility. And this is not just for women, this is very much 
uh, both male and female consideration. You need to, everyone needs to be listening to this kind of information. We talk about carbohydrates and the types that are more beneficial, the importance of sperm nourishment and lifestyle, dairy and soy and their links with fertility, as well as fats and the importance of omega-3 and even the environmental impact on fertility with particular reference to pesticides and pollution. And we, we do dive into alcohol uh, at a sort of societal level as well as a, a mechanistic level as to why that's not such a good idea from the perspective of improving your chances of conception, as well as the supplements that you might want to consider. There's also an article to support today's podcast that you can find on the Doctor's Kitchen website, which lists the evidence base used for the recommendations and the foundation for our conversation today. And I hope you find it a useful resource for you and your loved ones. Here is my conversation all to do about eating for fertility with Dr. Harriet Holm. Harriet, thanks so much uh, for joining me on the show. Super excited to talk about the subject with you. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, no, no worries. I mean, you, you've written some incredible articles for the website and stuff. Uh, and, and I love um, sort of your work and, and a bit about your story as well, about how you worked in the NHS, continue to work clinically and to sort of found nutrition. So I wonder if we could start actually by just exploring your story a bit more and, and how you became the healthy eating doctor, <laughs> which is your, your brand now. Sure. Um, so I studied medicine at Cambridge. It feels a, a very long time ago now. Um, and and then I did my clinical at UCL and I've stayed in London really ever since. So I trained as, first of all, as a paediatric, it was a paediatric trainee. And then I became a paediatric oncology trainee. And, and then I took some time out um, to do a PhD on the genetics of osteosarcoma, the rare bone tumour. Um, I really loved that. And and then I think it was sort of probably a combination of sort of noting more about the importance of nutrition with the paediatric oncology patients and and how tough that is. Um, and also then just really expanding my knowledge of genetics um, during my PhD and the emerging research on the microbiota and the microbiome. And I think that was the sort of um, those the things that sort of fueled my interest in nutrition and the sort of this, I really like the science side of it, how um, how it's really possible, I think, to 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 actually get some evidence-based uh, studies that are replicated in animals and humans. And that although there's a lot of sort of myths around nutrition, there is actually some you know fundamental science in there that if you can drill down to that, then you can actually, you know, really work that out and make a positive difference to your life. And I think it's it's that really, the sort of combination of being a doctor and seeing the importance of long-term health and also realizing how you can alter that and how you can really um, moderate that with nutrition and then looking at the science behind it, the science of the microbiota, the science of the microbiome. I find all that really fascinating. 
So um, then I stepped aside from medicine and I then lectured in nutrition. Oh, first of all, I became a registered nutritionist and then I lectured in nutrition. (laughs) Important step there, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was commissioned to write a degree on nutrition, um, which combines culinary skills. I didn't do that bit, but I did the nutrition and the health side. Um, And it's the first of its type in the country. And it's really aimed at, um, well, a lot of chefs, Um, Because I think it's how are they meant to know what nutritious food is if they don't learn about it and learn the importance and why you think some things are nutritious and not and and some of those myths. Um, So I I was really proud of that. And now I've um, written two books on um, what to eat during pregnancy and then and what to eat after you've had your baby and breastfeeding. Um, And um, I I write for you and I write for a couple (laughs) of other people and... um, and that's that's a bit about me. I really like science-based uh, nutrition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's like kind of a whistle-stop tour through like a, a, a really uh, expansive career thus far. Uh, you, you kind of skipped over the registered nutrition bit, and I just want to explore that a little bit more because you know you're registered with the AFN. It's sort of like benchmark for nutritionists in the UK. It demonstrates a clear understanding of the nutrition world. And I think that's a very, very unique proposition that you offer as both someone who has hardline, frontline clinical experience with the understanding of nutrition. So I wonder, how, how did you become registered and, and, and what, was your, what was your educational experience there? So for most people, I think the vast majority of people to register with the AFN have to do a specific degree, which then... Um, uh, which then entitles them to become registered with the AFN. But for me, I had a portfolio of evidence, um, various, it was about 50 pages, I think I had to to do a large portfolio and um, and references that all showed that I had the same knowledge as someone that had, had done that. So that was through, a, you know, sort of learning what I'd learned at Cambridge with it, sort of the basic science stuff, the physiology, um, you know, metabolism, biochemistry, um, a lot of that um, and then what I'd learned on my way through stuff for my PhD um, a sort of a wide portfolio of, of evidence really and that that entitled me to to be um, registered with the AFN so yes I think there are probably not many people that have got a medical degree are registered with the AFN and have got you know PhD in genetics so I guess I'm a little unusual but um, <laughs> it's a nice combination I feel it kind of gives me the science helps me to understand all of those studies. You know, I think before I did my, I was an academic clinical fellow, um, an ACF on the uh, NIHR pathway, and I'd done quite a bit of research on my way through as an academic trainee. And I think um, although I, you know, published in in blood and you know, found novel genes, uh, I, I didn't really understand about. Um, the difference between animal models, cellular models, how that translates. And I think it was really only doing my PhD that enabled me to really understand in detail the pros and cons of all those things. And I think as a just a, a probably a routine, you know, normal medical trainee without the ACF, I probably would have had even less understanding of that. So I think it puts me in a, a, a really privileged position to be able to understand, you know, when I read those papers, what are they actually doing? 
does it matter? Why have they chosen this model? Um, can you extrapolate anything from this model? And and then with my clinical training, I can think, oh, well, actually, they've done this in animals, but it doesn't make any difference in, in mm. humans or how can we translate it into humans? And then they've had their, you know, obviously it's nutrition based. So that's, you know, the AFN and, and, uh, and, and it, my field now is, you know, concentrating on nutrition and, and health together. Yeah, I, I, it's a, a fascinating and really um, interesting perspective that you, you're able to glean by looking at those studies. And, and I, I don't want to digress too much because I want to get to the topic of eating to improve fertility. But I wonder, given your perspective, where do you think the biggest pitfalls are within nutritional science and the hierarchy of evidence that we have available to us as clinicians that look at nutrition and and where do you think we should be concentrating our efforts if we were to design more nutrition trials that could actually uh, offer us a way of of helping people live healthy happier lives um i think if you have animal and cellular models they're quite easy to control and um and you can you can easily get you know sort of answers from them obviously they're limited by the fact they're cellular and animal models but human models for nutrition are so difficult so i think you know clinical trials and nutrition are confounded and biased by so many different things you know if you mm. eat organic food you're probably more likely to go to the gym you live in a bigger house you have a bigger garden you know all of those things versus someone who eats you know regularly eats processed meat and it's very stereotypical but it's probably very true and how do you get over that and and how do you how do you you know make a placebo how do you do it sort of blind it how do you double blind it how do you you know you can easily randomize things but how do you how do you really work out what's going on and i think that the problem is with a lot of this is it's not a quick intervention and this is lifestyle changes and these are changes that you're only really going to reap the benefit of many many years later and so just an intervention of a dietary change for a month or two or six months or even a couple of years, how do you look at the outpoint? You know, what's the outcome measure? And they're either very subjective outcome measures or they're objective outcome measures, which will take years into the future. If you sort of look at, you know, cardiovascular risk, you're going to have to wait, you know, quite a long time. And so I think... I think it's really difficult to do these studies that are powered enough to understand them that uh that you know and that are, they're costly as well they're, you know going to be a huge mm. cost who's going to do them is it going to be a clinical you know research group which is going to cost them a lot of money they're going to have to get charitable funding to do it um or or is it going to be a company looking to see if they can find an association and then of course you've got the whole problem of you know negative results aren't published are they mm, no yeah. one knows you know it's difficult enough to get a publication let alone negative results no one's interested in negative results so then you have that bias so i think it's it's the clinical studies that are really challenging really challenging yeah definitely i mean like i i'm often sort of met with this sort of cynical view of big pharma and how everything is a corporate conspiracy to dampen down nutrition and actually promote pharmaceuticals or, or nutritionals even. But it's like you said, it's inherently very difficult to do nutrition studies. You can't blind someone's diet uh, compared to another one. It's very expensive. Um, and the mechanisms are, 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 are multifactorial as well. So when you're eating food or eating according to a dietary pattern, you're 
you're having an influence on multiple different biological pathways, which uh, is great uh, on the surface of it because it means you know it can explain a whole bunch of observations that we see but on at the crux of it is very hard to explain uh, and go into depth of the the mechanisms it's it's much easier to you know give someone a placebo and then a pharmaceutical pill and test those because it maintains sort of the highest standard of um, research uh, according to the gold standard and also that um, you know most most clinical studies are now are so biomarker driven. And mm. if you've got a drug and it acts on target A and you know what the biomarker is, it's it's really, it's so much easier to give the intervention, measure the biomarker, and you've got a really nice, quick, easy, well, it's not cheap, but it's an awful lot cheaper, quicker study where you can power it with far fewer people than, you know, if you're, if you're doing this and you don't know what the biomarkers are or there are a range of biomarkers, you don't know quite how the biomarkers relate. And then mm. you've also got now, you know, think of the sort of the microbiota is even changing or, you know, is now thought to have an effect on um, chemotherapeutic sensitivity. You know, how mm. do you account for that as well? Do you give everyone a course of antibiotics, wipe the microbiota out <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, repopulate them with a faecal transplant to know? So there are just yeah. so many factors. I think it's so difficult. Yeah, exactly. You've got to just stick to first principles, uh, I think, when it comes to nutrition, um, which is exactly kind of what we're going to be talking about today um, when talking about eating to improve fertility. I, I wonder, sort of, my first question is, where did your interest sort of lie when it comes to fertility and postpartum nutrition? Is it is it from your own experience? Is it from colleagues? Or is it just something that you naturally gravitated toward? Um, I, think, I think probably a bit of bit of the fact that I'm female and I've been through all of these things myself and also um, I still I guess sort of a gravity towards women's health in, in that regard but I think mainly as a mum and a um, you know mum of two children now an awful lot of this information I just didn't feel it was available when I was going yeah. through it and um, I didn't have problems conceiving but I certainly didn't conceive you know on the on the you know first try and I did look into all of this at the time and I found it you know, really, even even with all of those sort of, you know, skill set, I found it, it not easy to navigate. And I thought, well, if I'm finding that, then then I'm sure an awful lot of other people are as well. And the same things, you know, when I had my children, I kind of thought, um, you know, I'd have a fairly good understanding being, a, you know, paediatrician, but um, it was so much more to it. And there's so much... This, you know, I didn't realise at the time about, you know, needing more, um, you know, calcium when you're breastfeeding, you know, those sort of things about looking after your long term, you know, health as a mum. And so it's only really now I feel I'm in a position to help other people and to give them that information um, so that they they're empowered to, you know, look after themselves. And also there's, there's just so much. Um, there's so many myths, you know. I know in Australia at the moment, um, bone broth is being touted as better than breast milk. And I just Really? Yes. I mean I no find it astonishing. Way. Yes. So Oh my word. <laughs> that is really worrying. Me. Yeah. And um so I just think I really I really just come back to I want it to provide science backed you know, evidence based information for people so that they've got they can just look through it and it's not biased. I'm not trying to to sell them a supplement or, you know, I'm just giving them the information so they can choose then whether they want to follow it or which bits they want to follow. And, and uh, yes, I, I just, I, I feel, I feel it needs to be 
more evidence base in the world you know there needs to be well I I think you know partly and to turn the lens on ourselves it's kind of like we're not taught nutrition to a significant um, uh, degree during our medical school training Um, and when patients sort of look for information you have this huge vacuum and unfortunately that's filled by a lot of erroneous players that will spread information. I mean, I, I was, I'm a bit, still in a bit of shock about the whole bone broth versus breast milk stuff, given that, how nutritious breast milk is. It's, uh, it's incredible. But, but also that breast bone broth is, bone broth does not impart special features. It hasn't, you know, the immune cells from the bone marrow are all killed and denatured when you cook it. Yeah. And yeah. it's got risk of toxins leaching out of the bones as you cook it for so long. I just, I just find it astonishing. And um, mm. yeah. So yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. But yeah. also, I think it's those people that you know. If you're struggling to breastfeed and you're, you know, you're going, you're you're desperate. You're going to look for answers. If you're trying to have a baby, you'll do anything. You know, you're you're yeah. desperate. And I think almost people play on those, you know, those fears and worries about it. And I find that really sad. Actually, I find yeah. it, you know, a sad state of affairs. When there's then when there's money to be made, um, people will stoop to levels uh, to sell a product. So unfortunately, um, but that's our job today to rectify the situation. So um, I wonder if we could start off with the landscape of fertility as it stands at the moment. Um, what are the sort of success rates for a couple, um, and are there any features of our sort of Western landscape, both from an environmental point of view and a food point of view, that might be having an impact on fertility rates? Um, so, about 80% of, of couples will conceive within a year. Um, and and if you haven't, then that's a good time to speak to your doctor. If you've got, you know, known problems already, then maybe speak to them a bit earlier. Um, but about 10 to 25% of couples who are trying for a baby will have some difficulty. And those mm. subfertility factors are spread pretty evenly between men and women. So it, men are just as important as this. I think a lot of the time they get forgotten. Um, and, uh, you know, what they're eating and their diet, you know, will play just as a huge role on gay meat, you know, healthy gay meat, quality gay meat production as it does for women. Um, but I think certainly it's a time when it's really stressful and you might be more inclined to um, to therefore eat those, you know, hyper palatable foods um, that are high in sugar, high in fat that maybe aren't quite so good for you. So um, and it's totally understandable if you're feeling stressed, you have that cortisol release that drives you to eat those hyper palatable foods, you know, inhibits mm-hmm. your uh, satiety feelings. So you eat more and that, you know, but, um, but then it's, you know, how can you try to contain that and then eat eat healthily to support your your fertility and i'm certainly not saying this is going to you know get everyone pregnant by any means this mm. is just about supporting you trying as opposed to a cure so um but there are a number of things you can do so carb um carb uh, carbohydrates are before we get onto carbs actually i just want to clarify what we mean by gay meat production because i can imagine there's a few listeners who are not privy to the medical terminology so i'm going to stop you every time i feel there's some medical jargon i'm going to clarify it if not for my own benefit then for the listeners <laughs> So gametes are are your the sperm and their the eggs, and that's what um, that's what I'm talking about when you gamete production. So obviously men are producing many many more, and women are producing you know one one or maybe two or sometimes more a month. But um, gametes for women take a lot longer to produce um, or to to mature, 
whereas um, they mature quicker in uh, in males. But probably a diet for three months is what you need to be thinking about um, changing. So the, changing your diet for about a three month period in order to mm. see any benefit. Really, it's not a quick fix. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think just to reiterate what you already said, you know, this isn't a list of cure-all foods that is going to make everyone super fertile, but it's definitely giving uh, couples the best chance at laying the foundation for improved fertility as guided by the evidence that we'll, we'll dive into. And just with my GP hat on, um, uh, I just have to remind listeners that, you know, 80% after a year, um, those are good numbers, but you have to be having regular sexual intercourse for this to happen. I, I've had a number of instances where, you know, unfortunately couples have, have come in after a year, but they haven't been having sex as often as they should be, which is a couple of times a week, if not more. Um, so yeah, just to clarify that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you were talking about carbs. So this is a common thing that I'm asked about in terms of the quality of carbs and, and the amount of carbs and stuff. H how does that impact fertility? So carbohydrates, when they're broken down, they're broken down into saccharides, little tiny rings. And those are your, you know, your glucose and your sucrose. And the bigger the carbohydrate molecule, the harder it is to break it down. And so the, the longer it is, um, the, the sort of lower and slower the the rise in glucose and that puts less pressure on your body and that um, is your sort of marker of insulin sensitivity or resistance and um, and that may influence ovarian function and certainly in women with PCOS they've got um, when you improve their insulin sensitivity and they have a lower carbohydrate diet that can um, help them to ovulate so if you can change, you know, this is really the basis of a healthy diet anyway. If you can change from mm. refined carbohydrates to whole grain carbohydrates, you know, that's that's going to really support your body anyway. And um, not just the fact that you've got that insulin sensitivity, but also they've got, you know, nutrients in them. And, and that as they, you know, harder to break down, some of them, more of them make it to the colon where they, you know, feed and, you know, you support your uh, your microbiota as, as those prebiotics. So they're good from a number of, of points, really. And that um, that antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, you know, met, uh, microbiota supporting effect has been shown to have beneficial effects on glucose metabolism. And there was one um, study, the Earth study, that showed that if you have a higher level of those whole grains in a preconception diet, it was actually associated with a higher probability of live birth. Oh, wow. And was there any um, explanation other than what you've uh, just brought up there about why whole grains in particular might have that beneficial effect is, is it something to do with the sort of extra antioxidant load or the extra sort of phytonutrients that you find in the the high fiber whole grains i think it's a combination of those that like the an extra anti-nutrients the and the fact that um we know that refined sugars can irritate and, and don't support or help your microbiota and that if your microbiota is not happy that increases your risk of chronic inflammation so you can see then how it has sort of wider role if you've got the antioxidant features the prebiotics you've got healthy microbiota lower levels of inflammation that that's going to help 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many, like we said at the start of this, there's so many potential pathways as to why this might be helping. And I suppose this is all just hypotheses, but um, it is interesting to note that everything that we talk about and we're going to talk about is really the foundation of a generally healthy diet anyway. But it's interesting to have these conversations. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So uh, dairy is something I'm asked about a lot. Um, I I know during my my master's in nutritional medicine, um, we had a whole lecture on iodine. And uh, one of the lecturers um, was was really hot on dairy being a very uh, important source of iodine, which has a whole bunch of uh, beneficial effects and important effects, particularly on thyroid metabolism. Um, but but dairy um, and fertility is there uh, a positive or a negative association? What do we need to know about this this ingredient in our diets? Um, yeah. So just to just to go back to iodine, I think iodine is a forgotten nutrient, and loads mm. of people have, don't realize that they need it. And especially if you know you um, you sort of dabble in the oh I'll go dairy free and you don't eat fish or eggs where you know your main iodine sources are um, you don't realize that you're going to miss out on that but the one good thing is that there are a number of plant-based milks now that are, are fortifying with iodine which I think is mm. really fantastic um, so dairy there's no real evidence that dairy affects fertility um, and the same with soy really that you know um so uh, there's no reason to stop dairy or, or soy while you're while you're trying for a baby. In the same way that I think you know probably dairy is a really good source of calcium and protein and iodine, and you can choose to have it in your diet in limited you know limited quantities like the Mediterranean style diet, or you can choose to have you know those plant based alternatives. Same with the sort of you know general healthy diet. Yeah, just to reiterate, actually, I think it is important if you are looking for plant-based alternatives to look for those fortified milks um, as one of the main sources of iodine in our diets, um, those who, who eat all animal products is milk because of the iodinization process in the, in the agricultural farming methods. But it is also found in sort of uh, eggs and fish as well. So, and it's particularly good for, you know, well, it's important to maintain adequate um, iodine levels for fertility. And and also while breastfeeding as well. And, um, yes. and the other thing I think that people tend to think organic food is better and they'll go out mm. and they'll buy the organic uh, plant-based milk, realize, not realizing that it's not fortified. Mm. And I think that's, um, you know, uh, that's a really important thing to highlight. If you're, if you're, if you're dairy free or plant based and that's your main source of calcium and iodine, always ignore the, the organic ones and go for the ones that are fortified. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And on that note, um, let's talk about meat and fish, actually, because I think given that the popularity of 100 percent plant based is on the rise, um, I think we, we have to, you know, really be pragmatic when it comes to the potential impact on fertility as well and, and what that could entail. Yeah, so um, meat and fish um, during fertility. So it's a omega three is really important for you know cellular uh, function, the the membrane formation, and um, and it's important for us. It's really important for um, for gamete. So those sperm and and their eggs. Um, so eating fish is is important. Eating that omega three, the oily fish, if you can do that, if you're if that's part of your diet. Or eating those um, seeds and nuts, um, which you know the plant-based sources of them. 
So um, carry on doing that and do that a couple of times a week until you get pregnant and then drop it down to sort of one serving a week of oily fish. And then um, meat. So there's no association, there's no real evidence that meat um, decreases your fertility. But I think if you sort of look at sort of the bigger picture here, you know, you probably want to be eating mainly plant-based. That's where the evidence is with, you know, limited meat. And that if you're going to eat meat, then eat quality over quantity and try to avoid processed meat. And we know that um, processed meat is good at quality evidence that um, if it's preserved by smoking and nitrites, that those um, chemicals in it do increase your long-term risk of bowel cancer. So avoid those where possible. Look for small quantity, quality meat, quality over quantity and um and then keep eating those those oily fish which are so important or your chia seeds walnuts you know those things instead yeah yeah, yeah definitely i, I want to double t- uh, double click on omega-3 actually because it is certainly something that um has grown in importance across a number of different fields of nutrition and medicine um but i, I want to uh weigh in on your um uh genetic uh genetic experience here is there a difference between um certain phenotypes i.e. certain people based on their uh, their genes and their ability to absorb uh omega-3 long chain fats from omega-3 sources that come from plants like walnuts and, and chia seeds is there a difference from uh, depending on cultural backgrounds or ethnicity um that's a really great question i don't know that actually um but i i'm sure there will be as in i'm sure that there are you know, the more we understand about genetics, the more we understand about, you know, the sort of the, the SNPs, the, the single nucleotide polymorphisms, those tiny changes that aren't mutations, but will all impact and probably infer a slightly different phenotype. So I imagine there's, a, you know, a slightly different phenotype, there's probably a, a range of, of phenotypic effect and mm. and that will undoubtedly change every aspect of of our makeup, including you know, omega-3 transport metabolism and, and all of those things. I'm sure we, and I, you know, from the sort of understanding that we have of genetics, it's probably also modulated an environmental factor where you can switch it on and off with methylation. And that's probably, mm. you know, uh, we don't fully understand how that works, but things like smoking, chemical exposure, UV sunlight, all those other things, you know, will have an effect on as well. So... Um, and in some ways, that's quite nice as it shows that there's some plasticity. You might be able to change things according to your environment. But also there is, you know, um, there's the negative side to that as well. That if you if your environmental setup isn't as great, then they, you yeah. may be having a negative connotations there. But um, I don't know the specifics of, of omega-3 um, genetic you know, phenotype. Yeah. and I, I caught myself there using some jargon uh, so phenotype being the physical manifestation of your genes essentially um and uh yeah i would definitely look into that because i've been i think i had a nutrigenetic test a number of years ago i was given it for free and it isolated one of these snips in it and it 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 suggested that my ability to convert short chain omega-3 fats that we find in walnut and chia is actually heightened um into long term which which is beneficial particularly if you are plant-based um but it's definitely one to do, do you have any opinion on those nutrigenetic tests as they stand at the moment i know there's a, a, a vast range of different companies some who are responsible and some that are less responsible um but without naming names uh do, do you have a general opinion on them there are there is a huge range of quality undoubtedly um and and then i think it also comes down to what you do with it 
um, how so so to sort of to back up if you think of like your DNA as as the coding for your body and that's like I, I don't know if you were to write you know like your PhD thesis that contains everything in it it's a huge volume it's got 24,000 genes and then if you break that down into um, to genes so that's like chapters of the book and then um, if you think of like a mutation might be you know like cutting out a sentence and then you look at the SNP so those are single nucleotide polymorphisms those are just like maybe the punctuation and and so all those tests are looking at are actually the SNPs, so those little tiny changes, the sort of, you know, the single nucleotide base, base changes. And um, and and the information you can get from that, while it is information, it is limited because you're only able to really say, well, there's an association. In some ways, you can look at the mechanism and, and understand the mechanism, but a lot of it, it is sort of, you know, an association. If you have this, you might have an association of that. And um, I think some of them are really helpful, like vitamin D metabolism is really useful because if you um, if you have low vitamin D and um, you have specific SNPs in the um, so alterations in the genes which transport metabolize vitamin D, you know that you need to have quite quite huge doses of vitamin D in order to keep it in the, the normal range. So that can be really helpful. But I think there are an awful lot of um, other genes which are looked at like the MTHFR gene, which has got no clinical significance and an awful lot of, of amazing stuff has been published about that gene, which um, I'm always amazed by. And, and, and I think actually then if, you, if you've got someone that's selling to you and, is, and then selling you a whole pile of different supplements off the back mm. of it, then I think that's really worrying. If you've done it to find... Um, to find out a bit more about your genetics, your possible associations of risk, um, because that's what it is. You know, it's just possible associations of risk. Then, then it can be quite interesting. Can shed light on the vitamin D, um, but that's about as far as it goes at the moment. I think, um, mm. and I think you need to be quite cautious about who's doing it, why they're doing it, and you know, what are they, what they're trying to sell you off the back of it. Is it a whole pile of their supplements? Is it that you need to be having more, you know, all of these B vitamins and specific type of folate, you know, mm. because there's very limited evidence for any of that. And um, and so I think you need to be cautious in the same way. It's like um, when people say, oh, I need to have all my hormones done because I need to balance my hormones. And, yeah. you know, these sort of yeah. nebulous terms which are sort of banded around, they're, they're really marketing terms, you know, I'm going to balance yeah. my hormones. Um, you can't balance your hormones and you know having a hormone test is not going to to help you most of the time and these nutrigenetic tests have a role i think they they will increase and it will be far more information will be available and they'll you know be much more interesting and much more informative um but at the moment i think they have a limited place and they give limited information and uh, and they certainly can't tell you you know, a prescriptive diet based on your mm. genetics, you should eat, you know, cabbage, potatoes. They're not going to tell you that. And if you find yeah. someone that tells you that, then um, then ignore them. Yeah, there's cer certainly red flags there, I think, whenever you see a product associated with a complementary product uh, where the two are intertwined to sort of capitalize on people's fear of being deficient. Um, and I, and I, I think you're you're right about the the nebulous terms and that there's there's quite a few ones out there like boosting immunity, superfoods is the classic one, 
and uh, balancing hormones, all of which don't really mean anything. You can you can kind of forgive the public for kind of falling into these traps, like oh, I need to balance my hormones because I'm I'm going through the menopause and they need to be balanced, sort of thing. But like you said, that there's no that that just doesn't make sense to to you know as an action to to balance your hormones. But that isn't to say nutrition um, and 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 even to an extent targeted supplementation may have a, a beneficial impact on your your health outcomes and, and well-being absolutely and a classic example of that is pcos where you yes. know your diet can really affect your hormones but that doesn't mm. mean that you're you know you're balancing them and blood tests you know are going to give you some information but it's not a way of you know you can't eat food x and balance that so i think um and absolutely i I, I see as you know a consumer why it'd be really appealing and you know if mm. I, oh I need to balance my hormones it's going to help me I'm going to feel great or um these you know I, I totally under, understand it so I, I certainly um I, I certainly understand why it's done and I, I certainly don't you know don't judge anyone that you know feels that you should do that or want to do that because I completely understand why you, why you would and and it it would be lovely if you could just eat a superfood and you'd feel great. And I, I totally get why, especially with COVID, why you'd want to, you know, boost your immune system and yeah, fight off COVID yeah. and not get ill. Whereas, um, whereas, you know, it's those, those terms are just really marketing terms. So, um, yeah. yeah. One to watch out for. Um, let, let's double, let's, let's go back to Omega-3. Uh, Cause uh, I, I know this is a, a very popular sort of uh, topic, but it's definitely got an important role in, like you said, the production of sperm. What other sort of roles does it have through the perspective of both male and, and female fertility? Yeah, so um, it's really important for females as well during the sort of egg maturation and early embryo development. And and also omega-3 are really important as precursors um, for a number of important hormones. And those play a vital role in implantation and the maintenance of pregnancy. Um, and there was um, a mouse study as well that found that omega-3 delayed ovarian ageing and that oh, has wow. been replicated in humans. And going back to that earth study I mentioned before, they found that if you increase omega-3 through supplementation, that um, you can increase clinical pregnancy and live birth rates as well. So omega-3 is really important. It's important for you know your long-term health and even more so during fertility and um, whether you get that from the omega-3 or plant-based, you know, ha- trying to increase your omega-3 to 6 ratio, um, you know, is really important. And men, and not men, sorry, just in general eating a sort of westernised diet, that's often, you know, reverse that omega-3, 6 ratio. So you're more likely to be getting omega-6 from those pl- um, animal saturated fat sources and uh, and less likely to be having those omega-3 sources. So if you can try to reverse that, um, eat that, you know, eat those sources um, that will, you know, support your long-term health and support your fertility. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many different ways in which this diet is going to be supporting overall well-being, um, which is why I find these kind of conversations so validating for, you know, the, just changing your, your your diet overall. Not only is it going to impact potentially your, uh, your ability to conceive, but also, you know, your cardiovascular health, your risk of dementia, etc. Um, I, I wonder if um, there, there are sort of... Um, uh, that there's overlapping features with those who are down the path of assisted reproductive technologies and, and assistance with with conception. Is there a is is there a certain sort of dietary pattern, or, or do the things that we've talked about already also uh, play a role for for those couples? 
so I think that a lot of the research that we've got for, for just couples trying in general has come from those assisted reproduction um, therapies. So that's where a lot, it's a much easier to get those outcome measures to measure live birth to you know do an mm. interventional study. Um, if you're if you if you're doing that, it's a lot more controlled. So a lot of this evidence does come from that. And certainly, if you're going through those techniques um, at the moment, that you know these things will will support that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, we talked a bit about the environment um, in terms of uh, pollution, perhaps exposure to uh, agricultural chemicals, um, pesticides, etc. Do, do we have any sort of knowledge or understanding about the role that they could be playing in a negative role with, with fertility? Yeah, so... Um there is there is emerging evidence actually about the role of pesticides and um, i think that's why a lot of people if you go um, for ivf you're advised to eat an organic diet and while the chemicals are safe or thought to be safe for us and at our small levels um there is sort of there is some evidence which is quite difficult to ignore that they you know in small quantities pesticides can um can have an effect so there was a study that looked at um, men who ate the highest amount of fruit and vegetable because they're often, you know, the ones that have got pesticides on them. And that those who ate more, um, more fruit and vegetables were associated with a higher percentage of abnormal sperm. Now, right. there may well be, you know, confounders in that and, and bias. Um, if you're eating more fruit and vegetables, you may well be eating a, you know, a healthier diet in general. Um, but then you shouldn't have abnormal sperm. So, yeah. um, so I think it's quite hard to ignore that. Mm. Um, and I think it's an easy change to make. It really the only downside of organic food is the cost. Um, there isn't really an organic, you know, a downside otherwise. And if that's mm. something that you know you can afford, then certainly while you know you're trying for a baby and the sort of you know the cellular changes matter, so you know. A, more important than ever when you're having a baby you know that that one sperm that one egg are mm. the key you know are, are what's going to get you a baby or not that you know that just for three months or while you're trying if you could swap over to an organic diet um i think that would would be helpful and certainly if yeah. you can't wash your fruit and vegetables really well because you know they, they're going to be mainly on the outside of them and give them a good scrub yeah yeah absolutely I, there's, there's a whole bunch of like diy uh fruit and veg scrubbing mixtures and rubs that you can get i think with like a bit of vinegar or something like that um to to really scrub your vegetables and i think you're right you know it's getting harder to ignore the growing concerns i think around pesticide uh, use on fruits and vegetables um to the point where i mean i don't get too caught up about um organic versus conventional like when i'm out or when we used to go to restaurants let's say uh but uh but if possible and where possible i try and choose organic um, because like you said the only downside is the cost and there are certainly environmental gains to to be had from uh, organic produce as well um which is kind of shifting my my own personal consumer habits and also with um milk now this is the igf1 seen in in milk so that's the um, insulin like growth factor which is seen more in um in non-organic milk there are you know emerging studies that may well be linked with you know like prostate cancer mm. um so I, I just think um if you can have organic it, you know 
while there's no difference probably in the nutritional value of it, you know, um, an organic carrot is no different or has marginal difference to a non-organic carrot. It's those added bits that come with it. Those, you know, the pesticide residue or the IGF-1 in in milk that, um, that maybe long-term, you know, we, there's a, there's a huge difference as well, I think, between, you know, absolute safety in a general population or, you know, at a population level, versus you know an individual level especially if you're trying to get pregnant um and i think there's still a lot more to there's still a lot more research to be done and a lot more information to know really yeah yeah alcohol <laughs> uh, i'm i'm probably speaking more to the male audience when talking about alcohol and fertility but uh, as this sort of tend to sideline themselves or perhaps they're sidelined by their partner when it comes to changes to, to support fertility. Uh, is there any sort of um, evidence to suggest that we should be certainly drinking less or maybe not at all? Yes. So, uh, you know, alcohol, alcohol you know, in general, we should really be drinking less. You know, alcohol yeah. is the number one <laughs> risk factor for breast cancer um, other than genetics, obviously. Um, but you know, in general, we should all be drinking less. And certainly when you're trying to conceive, there's there's evidence that it reduces your fertility, reduces your time to conception, reduces your quality of those gay meats, you know, those and um, and and it reduces the quality of embryo quality as well. So even once they fertilize and you've got your, your embryo, that it, it decreases implantation in people going through IVF. So yeah. there's good evidence that um, you should try and avoid it if, if you're able to. Yeah, yeah. I- it's definitely one of those subjects, I think, that perhaps in 50 years' time, we're probably going to look back at our current society and the way we sort of within perpetuity allow alcohol advertising uh, it, across, you know, things like the Premier League, um, in, in supermarkets and all the rest of it. Like, oh my God, how on earth did we allow this to happen considering the associations with not just physical and mental problems, but also the wider implications of things like abuse and, you know, poverty and addiction. You know, it's it's a, it's a hugely, hugely problematic substance that we allow in society without many restrictions. I think it will be the news. I, I agree entirely. I think we'll look back on it in the same way that we did with smoking. Mm. And, um, and, and now, you know, how lovely is it to be able to go out to a restaurant and, you know, you choose if you want, you know, you're, you're not, you, you don't have to put up with other people's smoke. You know, if you want to smoke, go outside. I think that that's mm. really refreshing for the, the non-smokers of the world. Um, I wonder, I wonder if alcohol will ever get to that stage. I, I don't think we will. I think alcohol will probably always be a social thing. But I think certainly in the way, you know, the vegan trend has, has come in from the cold and is now really mm. mainstream. I think that probably a lot more people will be, um, you know, alcohol free. I certainly remember, uh, so I had meningitis 20 years ago uh, when I was Oh, student. really? Wow. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I gave up alcohol for a year afterwards. I had um, you know, issues afterwards. And it was such a sort of, you know, a, d- a difficult thing socially 20 years ago, you know, not to go on a night out at, at you know, medical school Med and school, not yeah. to drink. Um, mm. uh, but now I think that's probably a lot more socially acceptable if you don't drink. And, you know, I think that's great. I think, you know, you know, so I think I think the world's that's changing for better. I, I definitely see similarities with the smoking industry. You know, you're seeing a lot of consolidation around big um, smoking corporations like Philip Morris and the likes, hoovering up 
those electronic cigarette companies because they see the trend towards non-smoking. And I think the same thing is happening within the drinks industry, which is why you have big giants like Diageo um, buying up smaller companies that are doing non-alcoholic spirits, um, some of which I, I really like, actually, the non-spirit, the, the, the zero-alcohol spirits, because they give you that feeling of uh, socializing when you're out, but not the hangover the next day. And and actually, I, I've admitted this in the podcast recently about how I was drinking definitely a lot more last year uh, during 2020 when I was coming back from work as a way to sort of unwind. And... Um, I mean, that that definitely had negative connotations for me, the way I felt the next day. My weight definitely fluctuated. My mood was definitely, you know, up and down and stuff. So I, I think there's definitely that trend towards uh, massively reducing or completely removing alcohol in its entirety that um, that I welcome when you when you look at the, the, the grander impacts of alcohol in society. No, I, I agree entirely. I think it's a it's a great direction that we're traveling in with our cold. Yeah. And the trends as well. They're, they're, they're pretty cool to see like, you know, zero beer, zero percent beer and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we digress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I am. Um, I, so I don't drink very much and I, I couldn't tolerate a hangover anymore. You know, I just, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's my main thing. <laughs> I've got to, you know, my kids are enough, you know. I can be up with them up in the morning and, you know, have a hangover as well. I just... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe it's just a trend that, that happens when you go into your late 30s and 40s that, you know... <laughs> just, There's just, so much advertising that sort of, you know, mum, it's wine o'clock <laughs> time and, you know, those things. And I, I get that, you know, after, a, you know, a long day, you might want to have a glass of wine or, you know, beer or whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I guess it's... But there's so many other different, different, I guess not different ways of relaxing now that I think that maybe yeah. you know we're we're a bit more tuned into, which is good. Definitely, we're, we're sport for choice. I think in terms of activities of things that we can do, maybe not right now uh, dur- during a lockdown period, but you know there are a whole bunch of other activities that we should be encouraging to sort of wind down rather than looking at the bottom of a bottle. Um, or the top of the bottle that turns into bottom of the bottle. Anyway, so uh, we talked a bit about omega-3 um, and the the interesting uh, fact about the Earth study finding that, you know, omega-3 supplementation was was related to an increase of, um, of live birth rate. Um, are, are there supplements that you think are worth considering for, for, for couples um, who, are con- who are trying to conceive? So certainly um, folate. Every woman should mm-hmm. be on, you know, preconception folate from as soon as you're thinking about trying to get pregnant um, right up until 12 weeks. And most people should be on um, you know, 400 milligrams of, of folate. If you've got um, uh, epilepsy or you um, have special risk factors, then you might need to be on you know, a higher dose. Um, but there's good evidence as well that maybe folate might, folate might help men, actually. And um, it's increased their um, sperm count um, and sperm quality. So I think maybe if you're struggling, um, might be something to try. You know, it's obviously really safe. Um, it's safe enough for women to take during pregnancy. It reduces their risk of um, spina bifida. So that's neural tube defects where the, the neural tube um, doesn't form completely at the base of the spine. So, um, you know, if it's safe enough for women to take, it will. it's safe enough for men to take as well and um, it might actually help you. Equally, you know, as, as a male, you could also just, you know, 
uh, increase folate in your diet. So it's like broccoli, green leafy vegetables, mm. kidney beans, uh, fortified foods, chickpeas. So they those kind of um, things. Um, so certainly folate, definitely for women, um, consider it for men. And then um, vitamin D, everyone should, you know, the sort of NHS guidance, everyone should be taking uh, vitamin D during the autumn and winter months. You try to keep it in the normal range. And then um, there's sort of lots of other different supplements. And I think the evidence for these is a lot more sketchy. Um, so they're antioxidants. Um, that's like ends up things like coenzyme Q10 and vitamin E. Mm. Um, they've been shown that they may help male infertility, um, but much less positive effect in women. And I think um, there's sort of there's some some evidence to support them. But I think really a lot more more research, I think, is really needed because a lot of the, the studies are, are quite low quality. Um, so I personally would, would you know, I, I wouldn't be rushing to, to supplement with those. I think if you can increase your antioxidant levels within your diet, um, so that's, you know, fruit, vegetables, whole grains, and um, that that is, you know, is certainly the first step. Um, and then, you know, maybe further down the line, um, then maybe consider those depending on, on you know, your position. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So those are um, vitamin, I mean, I take, I take 2000, international units of vitamin d3 every day um i i struggle to push my vitamin d levels high and it's most likely because of the um the complete the, my my skin color and my ability to convert uh to vitamin d3 in in, in the skin um but I, i'm no longer surprised when i see vitamin d levels in in the low 20s these days um, and i try and get people to get that sweet spot of, of at least around 40 to 50. It's a, there's a bit of a controversy around what is the optimal level for vitamin D, but you know, my sort of pragma, pragmatic thinking is that it's very hard to push your vitamin D levels up to a toxic level, unless you're literally taking like 10,000 IU a day, um, which would be very expensive to do. Um, so yeah, do, do you have any ideas about like, well, any suggestions on the, the amounts that people should supplement with? So I think um, vitamin D, is not straightforward to be honest because i think mm. um it's quite hard to know how much you should be taking without a blood test because yes you don't really know whether you how much you need so without sort of swamping the nhs and everyone clamoring to get an a vitamin d test i think you know for most people probably 400 international units which is the recommended dose will be enough but there will be people like you and me so I've got totally different complexion to you but I know mm. that I'm a poor metabolizer and transporter of vitamin d so I have to take 10,000 units a day oh so, really yeah <laughs> oh, okay. so um so I'm one of those people um and so so are my children um so and we know that vitamin d is a really important you know cofactor in many genes yeah. it's even been um been associated with lung function so if you look at p patients with copd oh. and cystic fibrosis an independent marker of lung function is vitamin d status and if you so I, yes. you know I, th I think it's um it's really it is important and it's important that we get enough so how do you know if you're one of those people? The only way you can tell if you've got low vitamin D, despite what you're doing, is really to have a blood test. And then you mm -hmm. can titrate and know, well, you know, okay, I'm taking 400 units, but my 
international units but my you know vitamin d levels are low you'll know that you need to take a bit more um so i don't think it's i think otherwise we're just treating it blind a lot of the time and that's that's not easy and also i think you know maybe a few years ago if i'd seen someone with low vitamin d levels and they'd said that they were taking them i might have wondered how much they took them Whereas now I think I'd think, oh, right, you're taking them, but probably mm. you're a poor transporter and metabolizer, so you need to take more. So mm. um, I think you've got a lot more information, and that's that one key thing where I think the nutrigenetics is really actually a really helpful test yeah. just to know about your vitamin D, not so much the rest of it, but certainly vitamin D. And that, that gives you that information to know that you do need to take more. So... And while certainly not saying with fertility that if you supplement, you're more likely to get pregnant. I think, you know, everyone should really be keeping their vitamin D level in the normal range, you know, for long term health. And that will support, you know, all of the other parameters of health, including fertility. Do do you have any opinion on sort of the home blood testing kits that are, again, more available these days? Because I'm conscious that people who don't want to... um, waste to for for one of a better term uh nhs time by going in to check their levels just so they're in the optimal range when they don't actually have symptoms suggestive of severe vitamin d deficiency do, do you think that there's a role for, for those companies in a, in a private manner so i think i think that there probably is but again there's a huge variety of them and mm. a huge difference not in the quality of the blood test which i think is you know pretty standardized and good it's it's who's supplying it and what is their their reason are they are they doing it so that they can you know not just test vitamin d but they can test a whole panel of things most of which you know potentially meaningless or um you know when i was a doctor i I lived very much by the sort of philosophy of um of of only really doing investigations that would change my management not just out of interest but to change your management you know if a child came in and they were sick are they clinically sick so do I don't why am I doing blood tests on them? Yeah. I can tell they're sick. I don't need a blood test to mm. tell me they're sick. I might need a blood test to tell me something else. So in the same way that um you know, you could measure all manner of things in your body and have an interesting result. Um might be of interest to know all of those things, but it's not actually going to change management. So mm. I think if it's vitamin D and you know there's some sensible reasoning behind it or you know you're just doing that and you've got someone that can help support you with knowing what dose to take that's great if you're being sold a whole panel of meaningless blood tests then I'd be cautious about it to be honest it's back to Mm. those balancing hormone you know or find out all about your body so you probably don't really need to know any of that information but vitamin just knowing the vitamin d having someone you know registered nutritionist or a doctor that can help you know titrate those levels with you and tell you how much you should probably be taking i think is is helpful and there is a role for it certainly i think you know the nhs probably needs you know it's only a finite resource and needs to be focusing on those people with you know symptomatic levels of you know vitamin d or you know other other things but um and then i should caveat it and say that vitamin d is a fat soluble vitamin so your body stores it it is a hundred percent possible to take too much and get vitamin d toxicity so if you if you're if you don't know that you're a poor transporter of it you 100 percent should not be taking ten thousand units a day you should be on you know much lower you should be on 400 so 
yeah, there's there's caution with all of that as well. It's 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 definitely a difficult topic, isn't it? And and I you know I think again you've exemplified why it's um really advantageous to have that clinical perspective, that NHS perspective combined with nutrition and sort of delving into the private world of of testing and investigations because it's been drilled into my head from day one. If it doesn't change management, why on earth are you doing that test? And there are definitely cost saving um advantages with that methodology but it's also saving unnecessary investigation unnecessary pain and inconvenience to the patient and focusing on what really changes and pushes the needle so uh, you know i think we we could all learn from that experience and, and that's definitely something that has stayed with me whenever you know giving out uh, information online because it's very easy to dive into that biohacking optimization at any cost uh, kind of field, which um, again has a lot of erroneous players and can spread misinformation about what we should really be looking at when it comes to our, our bodies. Absolutely. And then also I think you sort of end up with, um, you know, you end up with this sort of panel of blood tests and one of them might be slightly abnormal. And then you're kind of, yeah. well, well, what do I do with that now? there weren't any symptoms you know it's not it's not abnormal enough to do anything about it it's just you know and it's you probably never needed that worry you never needed that blood test you never needed any of that information so I, I agree with you entirely and I think probably doing it more from a pediatric you know child's perspective you 100% wouldn't be just doing some blood tests on someone just just to have some interesting answers um yeah. but you might be more likely to do that I think on you know an adult in A&E or yeah. back when I was training you know in A and E, probably nearly twenty years ago, not quite fifteen years ago. It might have been no more. You know, everyone had that needle and everyone had those baseline yeah. bloods, and you know, it, I think it's um, things are changing. That's you know, it's really great. You've got that you know evidence base. What's the management decisions? So I, I think it's it's good, and we should you know use that through all walks of life, really, not just yeah, I think nutrition. Definitely, you know, lending on your pediatric experience, you are much less likely to stick a needle into a child, and you know cause massive aggravation to to a kid so you, you're going to be a lot more sort of reliant on your your clinical skills looking at symptoms taking a good history um then we are with patients you know as soon as people come to any &E, they they expect a blood test uh almost which is you know sometimes yeah, it takes a bit of explaining as to why we're not just taking blood it's not because we're trying to save money it's because we're trying to save you time and yes we are trying to save the nhs at the same time as well so um, I, I want to just touch on um, some of the foods because, you know, like I said earlier, it, it just kind of matches perfectly over a very well-balanced Mediterranean style way of eating when you're trying to eat for, you know, adequate levels of zinc and omega-3 and and, um, and iron, all the rest of it. Um, but particularly from folate, you, you mentioned a few ingredients. What 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 were the what were the ones that you would say that are particularly important um, from that perspective? So folates like green leafy vegetables, um, chickpeas, uh, broccoli, kidney beans, mm. and then um, uh, foods fortified with uh, folate. So breakfast cereals are you know a, a good example of that. So um, they've got they're fortified with folate normally so they, those are some and you, examples and you, you've got some um like uh some examples of of uh quality fats like um certain nuts and seeds are, are there any ones that that stick out to you um so like walnut is high in omega-3 they're you know good but i think 
this comes down to you know not just having like a fixed diet um, i'm only going to eat yeah. walnuts because they're mm. the highest in omega-3 i think i'm going to have you know a range of different things because otherwise it's restrictive it's boring and you need you need all those different things in the same way that we say to eat the rainbow all of those different colors are different antioxidant compounds and that's why we say it because you know they've all got slightly different properties so um mm. i think eat a range and you know have have different nuts have different seeds you know mix it up keep it interesting otherwise you'll get very very bored and that's exactly. not what you want and then you'll you know go back and you know that's the basis of a, a diet really isn't it where you restrict it's difficult to restrict you get bored you get fed up you crave the things you can't have and then you you know you just abandon it and i think this is really more about long-term sustainable lifetime life you know long-term lifetime changes where you're changing your diet for life and you're you're not bored, you're not restricting anything, you're just trying to make those healthy choices and eating mm. a range of different foods and and, um, and doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like my sort of um, suggestions for people is to use diversity as your, as your go-to strategy. Because if you diversify your diet across different categories of food that include things like quality fats from nuts and seeds and even, you know, cold-pressed oils, uh, lots of different colors from from different plant-based materials. You have a largely plant-based diet. You have a lot of fiber from beans and nuts and legumes. You're going to be getting a whole range of those different uh, micronutrients, macronutrients, and phytonutrients that are so pivotal for, yes, fertility, but also a whole bunch of other um uh, uh, risk reduction um, strategies for, for for other conditions. Absolutely, and if you restrict and you cut food groups out, you're a lot less likely to meet your micronutrient and macronutrient needs. So, I think, um, yeah, the key is diversity and choice and healthy choice and, and long term, you know, enjoyment of food. I really hope you enjoyed today's podcast. It is a minefield of a subject, but I think we can reasonably suggest a few key things that we touched on on today's conversation. It's largely a Mediterranean style diet, but it doesn't necessarily need to be Mediterranean flavored. You can still get good quality fats in the form of nuts and seeds, a variety of largely plants in your diet, good high fiber whole grains, as well as a good mixture of different omega-3 rich ingredients and yes some supplements through a variety of different dietary cuisines so you know we can create curries with lots of good quality fats in them you can create tray bakes and middle eastern uh, dishes with beans and and different lentils and different flavors so do have a think about the wider application of the things that we talked about it doesn't necessarily need to keep to a mediterranean flavored way of eating i really hope you enjoyed today's pod do check out the podcast uh, show notes as well as the article that was written by dr harrier on the doctorskitchen.com and i will see you here next week imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.